Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 is where we're going to start off tonight. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. John is speaking and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now we need to look closely here at what John says. John says that Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We're going to deal with the whole, baptized in the Holy Spirit first, then we're going to come back and take a look at what it means to be baptized with fire. Um, the word baptized in the Greek is the word baptizo, which means to dunk or to dip into. It's a picture from dying, actually, when they would take a piece of cloth and they would put it into a vat of liquid that had a color or a dye in it. And when you put it into the water, it, the cloth came out whatever color the dye was. That's the word, the picture in, in the Greek. Baptizo means to dunk or to put into. And that's important because... If the Bible says that Jesus is going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, doesn't the Bible say that the Holy Spirit is going to be in us? But what does it mean then if we're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? We're going to be put into the Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible says the Holy Spirit is going to be put in us. So go with me back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, look at verses 15 through 20. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He said that the Father's going to send a helper. And by the way, that word another in the Greek means another of the same kind. The Father's going to send another helper, just like me, to be with you forever. And then he tells us who the helper is. That's the Holy Spirit. He said he's with you, but he's going to be where? He's going to be in you. And I love how he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. But wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that the Holy Spirit was going to come and be in him, be in us? But then he says, I'm going to be in you. See, that's one thing we got to let this truth sink in here. The Holy Spirit is God and Jesus is God and the Father is God. And if you try to separate the three of them, you're going to hurt yourself. But look closely at what he then says in verse 20. He says, in that day... When the Holy Spirit comes into you, you'll know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Sounds a little confusing. Some of you have seen me do this illustration before, but I'm going to bring it out again for some that haven't. And I encourage you to get your own envelopes and do the same thing, because it's really, really helpful. Make it, get an envelope and put your name on it. Then take a 3 by 5 card and put Jesus or the Holy Spirit on that 3 by 5 card, and then you put Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, inside you. All right? Remember Jesus said, you're going to realize that I'm in you. But then Jesus said, and you're in me. So you make another envelope, a little bigger with Jesus on it. 
and you put you and the Holy Spirit in you or Jesus in you inside this other envelope that's bigger now in Jesus. And Jesus says also that I'm in the Father. Get a bigger envelope with God the Father and now put that inside of that one. Where are you? You're swimming in God, aren't you? You have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's in you and you're in him and he's in the Father. Folks, I don't think we realize how blessed we are to be in Jesus Christ. Satan can't touch you, by the way, without the Father's permission. He can't even get anywhere near you. When Jesus walked on the earth, and the, the people in physical bodies, they recognized physical Jesus, but the demons could see the spiritual realm, and they knew who he was. Remember the man with the legion of demons? Jesus walked up to him, and the legion of demons all freaked out and said, We know who you are, Son of the Most High God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? Oh, guess what? If you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, or if you've been saved and He sealed you by His Spirit and put His Spirit within you and you're in Him, and He's in the Father, when you walk around on this earth, you walk around just like Jesus did in the spiritual realm, can see Jesus. I've shared this with some. Some of you might be not heard me tell this, but years ago when I was pastor here, I'm not going to get into the full detail of the whole story, but I and another pastor went to deal with an individual who had a demon. We went with a lady from the church who had connection with this family, and we went to their house, and I sat there with the other pastor and this lady, and for two hours I spoke and taught and preached the word to this young girl who was 18 years old who had a demon in her. Nothing happened. I was finished speaking. We get up. It's now four in the morning. We go to leave. And as we're leaving, the younger daughter comes to the door and starts yelling about the fact that she's tearing the house up. She's tearing the house up. And we could hear that young girl with a demon was just destroying the house. Amazingly, the lady who was with us turned to me and the other pastor and said, I'm supposed to go back in alone. We're like, okay, we'll stand on the porch and pray for you. And she went back in. It was about a half an hour later, the door opens, and this lady says to us, I'd love to introduce you to your sister in Christ. And she had gotten saved. Well, i got to be honest with you. I'm excited and confused at the same time because I had just preached for two hours. So we go back in and we sit down. And I say to the 18-year-old girl, how come you didn't respond when I was speaking? She said, the whole time you were speaking, I couldn't hear a word you were saying because the demon inside of me kept saying in a louder voice, I don't want him here. I don't want him here. I don't want him here. Oh, by the way, was the demon afraid of Jim Johnson? No. You and I walk around in the fullness of the Spirit. Now, whether we allow Him to have control or not, it's another whole issue, another study for another time. But Jesus said, when, uh, sorry, John the Baptist said, when Jesus comes, He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be put into the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's put into you. And folks, it's time we understood who we are in Jesus Christ. But just because you're baptized in the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you're going to walk in the Spirit. 
That doesn't mean you're going to listen to the Spirit. That doesn't mean you're not going to grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. We have to learn how to take advantage of who we are through Jesus. And again, another message for another time. But for tonight, allow this truth to be understood. Jesus said, sorry, John the Baptist said that Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And when you're saved, by the way, that's when it happens. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you are at that time baptized in the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit actually comes to indwell you. That's, don't let anybody tell you you need a second baptism or any other things like that. I could take the time to show you from Scripture how the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Bible is very, very clear that when you trust Christ as your Savior, you receive all of God at that time. John the Baptist said in John chapter 3 that he gives the Holy Spirit without measure. He is not, he gives it all at once. At the same time, Colossians chapter 2 talks about how Jesus, in Jesus, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have received fullness in Christ. Folks, Satan doesn't want you to know that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit when you got saved. And one of his tricks is once you realize that you've got Jesus in you, is he's now had some preachers out there say, well, you didn't receive all of Jesus. You need another baptism for this or a baptism for that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, does the Bible t teach that we all immediately, because we're saved, walk in the fullness of the Spirit? No, that's something you have to learn. But at the same time, you don't need another baptism. You don't need another experience. If you've been saved, you have been put into Jesus Christ. Let me... Don't just say that. Let me take you to a couple other verses real quick. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 and 13 says this. For just as the body is one and has many members or parts, and all the parts of the body, though, are, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. By the way, what's that body we were baptized into? Jesus himself. You were put into Jesus. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit which is Jesus, which is also the Father. In that day, hopefully you're going to realize that you're in Him and He's in you and He's in the Father. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized in Jesus. Do you get it yet? You've been put into Christ. And you're secure. Go to Romans chapter 6. You got it. Acts chapter six, sorry, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. When you were saved, you were baptized into Jesus. And that means you were baptized into his whole experience. His death, his burial, his resurrection. Everything that Jesus accomplished has been accomplished on your behalf. And everything that Jesus did and will be rewarded for, guess who's going to be rewarded for it if you're in Christ? You as well. 
It's all about him. It's not about us. So it's time we really understood a little bit more about this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it happens at the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. That's when it happens. Go ahead. That's okay. This is, by the way, if you didn't hear his question, this is an interesting and good question. His question is, when people touched Jesus, some were, I'm going to say some, not all, some were healed. So that's the important part of the answer to the question. Everybody that touched Jesus wasn't healed, but some were healed. Well, again, you've got to be real careful of saying they had faith. I actually preached on this today at a men's luncheon. Uh, I talked about the fact that I've been to a lot of funerals this week, and actually Julia, who used to be here with us, was having chemo at the exact same time I was having chemo. And actually, she would have chemo in the same room with me on Tuesdays. And she's in heaven. And I've been healed. Was it because I had more faith? We've got to be careful. We better not go down that road because you'd be contradicting Scripture. I could take you to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and following, where it talks about the men and women of faith that we don't have time to talk about, the Hebrew writer said, David and Samson and Jephthah, and people who received their, women who received their children back from the dead, those who escaped the edge of the sword, those who conquered armies and put them to flight. And in those same verses, it goes, others were tortured, others were killed by the sword, others wandered in dens and caves. The world was not worthy of them. And then the next verse says this, all of these were commended for their faith. So the teaching that if you have faith, then God will heal, that's dangerous teaching. The Bible doesn't teach that. And actually, we went a little further and looked at the fact that James was released, sorry, James was put to death in the same prison that Peter was released from. And God sometimes brings a miracle in this life, and other times he doesn't. And for his glory, he gets to choose, not us. And for those of us that have a problem with that, let me just say real quickly, we feel bad for James because James was put to death in that prison, but Peter was released. Two things. That was actually Peter's second miraculous release from prison. You go back and look at Acts chapter 5, you realize he and the other apostles were all miraculously released from prison when they had been put there, and then God miraculously released them. The, the people didn't even in the jail didn't even know they were released, and they went back out preaching. Oh, and at that time, James was also one of them who had already been miraculously released from prison. Back in Acts chapter 5, and not only was he miraculously released from prison, but now this time he wasn't. You go back and look at Mark chapter 10, verse 39. When John, the ba- sorry, John and his brother James, James and John were asking Jesus, who's going to sit on your right and who's going to sit on your left? Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are. Of course, they had no idea what they were talking about. And he then said this, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. So James had already been told that he would die because of his faith in Jesus. Folks, I just want to say, long answer to your question, how come some people touched him and were healed? If we're put into Jesus, why aren't we all healed? Well, the Bible doesn't say that you're automatically healed because you're in Jesus. And by the way, for those that try to take the passage that says, by his stripes we are healed and make it a physical healing, go back and look in the context. It's not talking physically at all. It goes back to his, it's a spiritual healing Back to Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, is tied to our salvation. So why are we not all healed? Because that's not what it means to be in Jesus. And not everybody that touched him was healed. Because if you remember that story about the woman who reached out and touched him, and he said, power, he said, someone touched me. What did the disciples say? Everybody's touching you right now, Jesus. But they all weren't healed. So 
We have a tendency sometime, and I'm not, I know that's not how you are looking at it, Bill, but there are those who say, well, look at what happened here. That means we can't go there. We've got to let the Holy Scripture answer that. But you were baptized into Jesus' death. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus uh, under the power of sin's temptation anymore? Was he tempted when he was in this life? How about now? How come? He died. He died and now he's risen again. And guess what? If we actually learn, we can learn how to live in what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And we can actually not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. But that's something you have to learn again. Maybe another time. It's another whole series of messages. For tonight, just want you to understand you've been put into Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you one more time. So is the Holy Spirit in you or are you in the Holy Spirit? Very good. Now we can move on. All right. But John also said that Jesus would baptize people with fire. Now we're going to look at the context here for this use of fire. Jesus, sorry, I keep saying Jesus. John the Baptist says, I'm going to baptize, verse 11, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In the context here, is fire, being baptized in fire, a good thing or a bad thing? In the context here, it's a bad thing. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Because the chaff, the unrighteous, are going to be burned with unquenchable fire. There's been much confusion about what it means to be baptized in fire but I think the scripture and the context here will help us. And we're going to dive into this a little bit. The context, like I said, seems to be using the word fire to refer to judgment. Go to Matthew chapter 3 again and look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The context of what John's saying here, fire is not being baptized in fire is not a good thing. Because that means you've been put into what? Remember, baptized is to put into. If you've been baptized in fire, you've been put into the fire. Just plain and simple, it's baptized in the fire. Does the Bible talk about people being put into the fire? Yeah, it sure does. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 20. says, and the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist, with it, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Was that a good thing? They were baptized in fire. They were put into the fire. Go to Revelation chapter 20, look at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So right now, first and foremost, being baptized in fire in this context, not a good thing. Being put into the fire is the final eternal judgment for lost folks. Yes, go ahead. Why the clothes of fire during Acts falling on the people? Yeah. Maybe you got to hang on for a second. Yep, that's good. That's a great question. But right now, let's just lay the foundation. In the context here in John's teaching, is the baptism of fire a judgment? Yes. It's a judgment for unbelievers. But there is also, remember, in our last study, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, but also not quite the final fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4 because Elijah's still going to come. Go with me to Malachi chapter 3. There is actually a place where fire is used and other, more than one. We're going to look at a few of them. Where the word fire is used as a purification and a cleansing. And here in Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, we're going to see a passage that actually kind of hints at John the Baptist and his message. In Malachi chapter 3, look at what it says. Behold... I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Sound familiar? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So in this context here, it's referring to John the Baptist, how he's going to come. He's going to be the one who prepares the way before the Lord. He's going to prepare the way before, before Jesus. And Jesus is going to come, and he's going to be coming, the scripture says, like a refiner's what? Fire. Fire is also used for purifying, is it not? You put something through the fire, you purify it, silver and gold. It's, it's purified through the fire. What I want you to hear, and I'm going to lay this out for you from Scripture, is Jesus is going to baptize people with fire. Some will be just put into the fire because of their lostness, because of their rejection of the Messiah and the Savior, and they will be judged by that fire. For those who are of us who are in Christ, there's a baptism of fire as well, and its purpose is cleansing and purifying for righteousness. Here in this context, he said he's going to refine Israel and the sons of Levi, he's going to refine them like gold and silver, and they're going to bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. They're going to go through the fire, and they're going to come out purified. Isn't that talking about the remnant from... I believe without question it's talking at the end of the tribulation period, without question, yes. But scripturally, and we're going to take a look at this, the Bible talks to believers about the fact that God's going to use fire in our lives to purify us. Doesn't the Bible say, first off, that we're going to go through a pruning process in John chapter 15, if you are in him and you're producing fruit, you're going to be pruned in order to make more fruit. Go ahead, Zach. Doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So doesn't that refer to us dying or rapture? 
Well, actually, when it talks about flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God, it's just talking about the fact that when we get into heaven or hell, you have a new body, a different type of body than you have now. It's not exactly like this one. So there's more to that. But go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 6 through 10. And we're coming back to what you brought out, Bill, in a little bit, all right, with the tongues of fire. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 6 through 10. Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Where we walk by faith and not by sight, yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here what the Bible says that Christians are going to be judged. Don't think for a second that I'm a Christian, I'm not going to be judged. No, no, no. You won't be judged of whether or not you sinned or not. That's been taken care of by Jesus. You're not being judged on whether or not you get into heaven or not. That's already been given you as a gift. But there is a judgment for believers that a lot of Christians don't understand. God is going to be judging us according to what we do after salvation. And here we see, definitely tied to our rewards, that there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians now, chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, look at verses 10 through 15. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it, let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by what? By fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here the Bible describes that judgment day a little bit more. For Christians, if anyone builds on top of the foundation that's already been laid, which is Jesus, and that's salvation, we need to be careful how we live after salvation, because if you build with gold, silver, precious stones, it'll be tested by the fire, and that stuff will survive the test of the fire if what we're building is worthless, wood, hay, stubble, it'll be burnt up. Now, you yourself will still be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So again, we see very clearly the context of John, sorry, Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist says that the fire is judgment for the unbeliever. We see that Malachi said that the guy was going to come, the messenger sent before the Lord to prepare the way for the Lord, and the Lord was going to come like a refiner's fire, and He's going to purify the nation of Israel, and at the same time burn up all the, the wicked because of their sin. The fire has a dual purpose, folks. For those who are in Christ, you're going to survive the fire of test because of Jesus. For those who are outside of Christ... The fire is going to be a judgment. 
Everybody's destined for fire. Isn't that something you never thought you'd hear the preacher say? And as Bill brought out, what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to indwell them? Yeah. Listen closely, though. Back in the Old Testament, we don't have time to turn there. Numbers chapter 15. If you were to look at verses 9 and following, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell the tabernacle, remember they were to build the tabernacle according to the specifications that God gave Moses. And when it was done and had been built, like God said, the Holy Spirit of God came to indwell the tabernacle. And a cloud of glory was there. And what was above the tent at night? A pillar of fire. And whenever the cloud moved, if you will, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, they would follow. They would pack up the tent and everything and follow wherever it went. And when it stopped, they set up camp there. And if it stayed for a few days, they didn't move. But if it moved the next night or the next day, they would follow. But God signified His Spirit coming to indwell the tabernacle with fire. Isn't that what happened when God revealed His glory on the mountain there where Moses got the Ten Commandments? Fire and thunder and lightning. And people were so afraid they didn't want to go anywhere near the mountain. God is holy. And He is a God of fire. But God's fire will purify the believer and burn up. Not eternally in the sense, the Bible says that the fire is never quenched and the worm dieth not. Don't think hell only happens for a period of time and then they're quenched. The Bible says hell is eternal. I'll get back to that maybe in a little bit. But going back to Acts chapter 2 now, when that day of Pentecost came and they were told to wait in Jerusalem until they received the gift of the promise of the Father, which was what? the Holy Spirit, into that room came a pillar of fire. And it separated, that individual pillar of fire separated into individual pillars of fire that came to rest over the heads of each of the believers. In the King James it says cloven. Y'all know what cloven means, right? Cloven hoof. It's a divided hoof. That pillar of fire divided into individual pillars of fire. And when His Spirit came to indwell the believers, he signified His Spirit coming to indwell them with a pillar of fire. Is this what John's referring to? Maybe possibly, but they weren't put into the fire as much, that one as much as, I think the Bible teaches that the fire, listen closely, is a judgment. It's a judgment. It's a judgment for the unbeliever, and it's a purification judgment for us as believers. Has God ever convicted anybody here? Then He's made a judgment about you, has He not? Don't think for a second that you know I'm not going to be judged. I'm a Christian now. I'm saved. I'm not going to be judged. Oh, we, we, the Bible says there's lots of judgment. There's actually supposed to be a daily self-judgment in the sense of listening to the Holy Spirit and doing what He says. David himself wrote in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 and 24, Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in paths of righteousness. There's a daily process of allowing God to correct us. In order for Him to do so, He's going to make judgments. Folks, you're going to go through judgment. Now, the Bible says you're not supposed to be the one who's doing the judgment. That's the Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Are we to make judgments then as believers? No, the Bible does say yes, we are. But when you do, you need to have already made sure that you've examined yourself cleanly and clearly first 
before you even go anywhere down that road. And actually, only, and I'll get to you in a second, only certain individuals, according to the scriptures, are supposed to be the ones who make those judgments, not everybody. Because those of us who judge will be measured with the same judgment in return. Isn't that what the scripture says? Yeah. It does. Exactly. Well, in that same passage about where it talks about judge not lest you be judged, you go on. Paul actually makes the clear statement that there are judgments. You're going to say something. Go ahead. Just what Sheila said, that we discern, and, and it's almost as though the world will not even allow you to use the word to judge because that seems so negative. It actually used to be that John chapter, th uh, chapter 3, verse 16 was the most quoted verse. Now in the world, the most quoted verse is judge not lest you be judged. Oh, they take it totally out of context. And they don't understand what that means because mm -hmm. with the Holy Spirit, we are called to have a spirit of discernment, yep. which is a spirit of judgment. Yep. So not only for ourselves. If Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you see your brother in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. But before you do, examine yourself first, you know, and do. So there, there's going to be judgments. I think that John's saying that we're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and with fire is a picture of the fact that we're going to be given the Holy Spirit and put into Christ and we're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there's also with that going to come a judgment. Go ahead. With that daily, is that part of the Oh, without question. I think there's a daily. There's a, there's a whole process of him. But he does it in love, but it doesn't feel good. Roman, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12 says all discipline is not pleasant at the time, but it's useful. It's valuable. I'm sure the rose bush hates it when you prune it, but it's for its best. We all are. So just understand when you sign up to be saved, you didn't just sign up to be put into the Holy Spirit and eternally secure. You signed up for fire. You signed up for a process of purification, refining, cleansing. And one day. Everything's going to be put through the fire to determine our level of reward in heaven. Remember in the past where you'd look at professional sporting events and almost every one of them, somebody would have a sign that said John 316. You'd have a crazy different color. Yep. Wig on. That wasn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Miles. Where were you going with this? No, I just say, but nowadays you don't see it. Not, not, as, not as much, that's for sure. That's not as much, that's for sure. All right, now, go with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. It says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, excuse me, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, and with whom I am well pleased. There is so much here uh, that we're actually going to spend the rest of tonight just in this section, and hopefully we'll close tonight with this section. All four Gospels record Jesus's baptism. That's actually kind of important because only I've only found three things that all four Gospels actually record. 
if you were to look at the stories of Jesus' life, you'll see a couple of this gospel will talk about it, but this one won't, and so on. There are only three things that all four gospels tell the story of. One is the crucifixion. Understood. Another is the feeding of the 5,000, which is interesting. And the third is his baptism. So it must be important. So real quickly with me, let's go and read the other accounts of Jesus' baptism just to get all the aspects of this story. Mark chapter 1, look at verses 9, 10, and 11. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Go to Luke chapter 3. Look at verses 21 and 22. Luke 3, 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Go to John chapter 1. Look at verses 29 through 34. John 1, 29 through 34. The next day he, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, I, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here we see it his baptism referred to in all four Gospels. Now John tried to hinder Jesus from being baptized, but not for the same reasons that he tried to stop the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, John was questioning the Sadducees and the Pharisees' actual repentance. That's why last week we saw, he said, go show evidence of your repentance before I'll baptize you. But Jesus didn't need to prove repentance. He had no need of repentance since he was sinless. But Jesus said it was necessary for him to be baptized, as you see here back in Matthew chapter 3, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, don't miss this. Was Jesus baptized because he needed to repent? Then why was he baptized? <laughs> Very good, to fulfill all righteousness. That's why, because that's what Jesus said. What does that mean? Don't know, but Jesus said to fulfill all righteousness, and I know that'll give me a correct answer on the test. So then that's what we're saying. Well, actually, there's more to it. Jesus fully identified with mankind so he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. In other words, Jesus identified with mankind in every single way, including the baptism for repentance. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 9 through 18. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them and us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, listen closely, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become like us in every single way, and so to fulfill all righteousness, he did everything that we were supposed to do. Though that's why he was baptized, to fulfill all righteousness and identifying with us completely in every single way. By the way, were you born of a woman? Yes. Was Jesus born of a woman? Yes. Did you, were you given flesh and blood? Yes. Was Jesus given flesh and blood? Have you been tempted? Yes. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. Every single thing that man has gone through, Jesus has experienced it. And he's done it for us. Now, let me show you also that scripturally, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness when it came to the law of God. I'm just going to give you a couple quick examples. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. 16. You can go to 15 if you want to. Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17, the, the law said, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. So these three times, every male, it's over 20, is supposed to appear before the Lord at the place that he will choose. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed, and every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord their God has given you. So here the scripture says, at these three feasts, which, which are what? Feast of unleavened bread, feast of weeks, and the feast of booths. Every single male over the age of 20 had to appear. And where was the place that God determined that that was to be? It was in Jerusalem. Go with me to John chapter 5. Look at verse 1. John chapter 5, verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, didn't Jesus spend most of his time in Galilee? Why was Jesus going to Jerusalem then? Because there was a feast, and he was a male Jew, and the law said that he had to appear in Jerusalem in those times, and Jesus did. He fulfilled all righteousness. Let me give you one more example. Go to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, look at verses 11 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, 
When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is twenty geras, half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from twenty years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, which, of the meeting, which is a temple, that it may bring to the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The law of Moses said that every male over 20 had to pay the temple tax. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when, they said, and, and when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However... Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. In other words, the Pharisees were like, aha, he doesn't pay the temple tax. Hey, Peter, does your master pay the temple tax? Peter, Peter I love Peter. Yeah, sure he does. He didn't know. Jesus says, uh, let me ask you a question. When kings take tax, do they tax their own kids or do they tax others? Well, of course, others. He said, so the sons are free. And by the way, Jesus, being the son of God, the king of the earth, didn't have to pay the temple tax because he was a son. But he said, you know what? Let's fulfill all righteousness. You go throw a fishing line in the water. First fish you catch, open its mouth, there'll be a shekel there. You go pay yours and mine. Remember, it was a half shekel each. You go pay yours and mine. Oh, there's so much to that story. We worry about how to come up with money. God says, look, money's nothing. I can find money. But at the same time, did Jesus have to pay the temple tax? No, but the law of Moses said that he should. And so to fulfill all righteousness, he did. Jesus actually fulfilled the law to the nth detail. He fulfilled all. All righteousness. When they were trying to find reason to have him put to death, remember they were trying to find some way that he sinned? How'd they do? They couldn't think of anything. Oh, and they, by the way, they were following him around all the time. But don't miss this. Jesus did not keep man-made rules and traditions of the religious leaders. Go to Mark chapter 7. When they did try to accuse him of breaking the law, he wasn't breaking the law of God. He was breaking the added to the law of God laws that the Pharisees had made. In Mark chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 8. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him some of the, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Did Jesus fulfill all of the Pharisees' definition of righteousness? No. But he kept the law of God fully and completely. He fulfilled all righteousness. Oh, by the way, we don't realize how many of the rules in our churches are man-made rules, not God's rules. I'm not going to go down that road. But let me just tell you, some of the rules we make about the sanctuary and what should or should not happen in the sanctuary, that's all man-made. Where is the temple of God? So we should be honoring the temple of God. But we'd rather make rules about what can or can't go on the carpet. And we judge those around us who brought something in that they should not have brought. And we think we're being religious and holy when we actually ignore the people whom God loves and make them try to match up to our rules. Oh, but don't you think we ought to? Oh, be careful. Because whenever it starts with don't you think we ought to, the Bible says there's a way that seems right unto man. I've been dealing with churches around this country who keep using this phrase. We're to do everything with excellence. Aren't we to do everything with excellence? Whose definition of excellence? I actually could show you a bunch of places in the scriptures where God used people who were pretty messed up and didn't do it excellently, but he still used them. Excellence comes from faith and just trusting the Lord and doing what he asked you to do to the best of your ability by his grace. When you start going down that road of doing things with excellence, all of a sudden someone determines what is excellence and what's not excellence. And we have filled our churches with man-made rules. Jesus, by the way, didn't follow those. Jesus probably would have brought something into the sanctuary against the rules. But when it came to the law of God, they could find nothing. Nothing. The only thing they came up with is, he said he was going to destroy the temple. Well, what he had said was, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And that's what they come up with their trumped up charges. By the way, when Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him visibly in the form of a dove. Is this when Jesus received the Holy Spirit, or did Jesus already have the Holy Spirit? I sure hope you got that right good. He already had it. But you know what? There's people out there teaching that Jesus was, this is when he became God. Oh, folks, it's out there. They were saying he was a man, and at his baptism is when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And right before he died, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that's when he, the Spirit left him. And he was just a man who had been empowered by the Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're not going to take the time to turn there because of how much time we have left tonight. 
But in Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, if you go back again to what we looked at in the birth narrative of Jesus, the scripture clearly tells us that he was God from the beginning. The God is going to overshadow you, Mary, and the one born in you is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. He was God from the moment he was in his, her womb. He didn't become God later on when the Holy Spirit came at baptism. Go to Luke chapter 1 real quick, verses 34 and 35. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. From the moment he was in Mary's womb, he was God. By the way, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Again, don't have time to walk you through all that tonight. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. No, was God and was with God. So the Word was God from the beginning. And actually, everything that was made was made by the Word. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So was He flesh and then became God, or was He God and then became flesh? He was God and then became flesh. I was testing you. They're not all yes answers, by the way. So <laughs> He was God and then became flesh. All right. The Bible actually tells us in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Isn't that interesting how we'll believe that John the Baptist will have the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, but Jesus doesn't get the Holy Spirit until he's 30? But there's wackos out there, folks, and there's dangerous teachers out there that are teaching that that's when he received the Holy Spirit. Peter was right. False prophets. Doesn't verse 31 explain... That he was, um, the purpose of baptizing was that he'd be revealed to Israel? You're heading, you're heading to where we're going. You're heading to right where we're going, Zach. Man, Zach reads his Bible, by the way. That's awesome. Zach, that's exactly where we're going. Stick with me here now. So, if he already had the Holy Spirit, if he was always God from the beginning, why does the Holy Spirit come down at his baptism? Zach just made your answer a lot easier for you. The visible appearance of the Holy Spirit and the audible voice from the Heavenly Father were the Trinity's confirmation of Jesus and His ministry. It was a confirmation to John the Baptist. Remember, we already read it in John chapter 1. John said, I didn't even fully understand who He was until I saw the Holy Spirit come down on Him. And that's, that was my confirmation because the one who sent me to baptize told me, the one you see the Holy Spirit come down on, that's the one. So when John says, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he'd already baptized Jesus. But the confirmation was not only for John, it was for everyone. The reason he was baptized wasn't only to fulfill all righteousness. Zach just told you, it was also a confirmation from the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son, the Trinity all in one, to the Jews and to everyone there, this is the one that I have been prophesying about all along. This is the one that the Old Testaments have been pointing to. This is the one. Folks, God spoke a couple other times as well. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll get to that when we get to Matthew 17. Again, right before his crucifixion, the cloud envelops him and Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John. And the voice from the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. 
Actually, in John chapter 12, go to John chapter 12 real quick. Look at verses 27 through 30. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Huh. So why did the Father speak? To confirm that this is the one that he had been talking about. God's purpose was to confirm and prove that Jesus was sent by him and he was the one promised of the Father. Um, real quickly, go to Psalm chapter 2. A lot of us don't realize that when God the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you realize that God the Father was quoting Scripture? We just think it was God just showing off and saying, I'm proud of my boy. Actually, if you look at the scriptures, God the Father was quoting his own word. In Psalm chapter 2, look at verses 7 through 12. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here the prophecy said, all you kings, you better pay attention to the Son. And God said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And when God the Father boomed his voice at his baptism and said, this is my son, he is referring to Psalm chapter 2. Oh, go real quick to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, look at verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Does that sound familiar? With whom I am pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Two passages that the Jews all knew were talking about the coming Messiah. One said he's going to be the son of God. This is his son. The other one said he's going to be pleased with him. And God the Father put the two together and said, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. This is the guy. Now in the one minute that we have left, go to John chapter 17. That definitely is, well, we'll get to that when we get to Matthew 17. We don't have time to get into that tonight. John, John chapter 17. Listen again to what Jesus says now. Verses 1 through 8. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He's praying, by the way, right before the cross. 
And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Why did this all happen at his baptism? It was one of the many times that God was confirming, this is my son. This is the one I've sent. Go to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus prays and says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, by the way, folks. Jesus prayed that we all would be one just as you, Father, are in, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be even one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become one, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. Folks, listen. Why does God want us to be living in unity, not amongst, only just amongst each other, but in a right relationship with the Father? For the same purpose that God was confirming who Jesus was, so that the world would know that He's the one that the Father sent. He wants to use us now as His ambassadors, so that the world would believe that Jesus is the one. The only one. It's sad today how many quote-unquote Christians are saying, they believe in Jesus as their way to God, but there may be more other ways. Mm -mm. There's only one. And the Father's already confirmed it, and now he wants to use us to confirm it. Oh, on your own, go home and read John chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. Because you know how the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? If you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and you are in Jesus, how does Jesus feel about you? You go look at John 17, the rest of that chapter, 24 to the end of the chapter. Jesus prayed that we would understand that the love that he has, the Father has for Jesus would be in us. And it is. Most of us don't believe it. If I were to ask you tonight, does Jesus, God the Father love you as much as he loves Jesus? You want to say yes, because you know it's the right answer. But do you live like you believe it? I love you. We'll see you in a few weeks.